At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson. And on this program, we're going to talk with State Senator Whitney Westerfield about criminal justice reform, in particular, a new law that was passed by the state legislature this last session called Marcy's Law. And actually, it kind of passed. It didn't fully go through. It passed both the House and the Senate, but it's going to be on the ballot uh, this November the 6th. And uh, Whitney, first of all, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Richard. I appreciate it. it. It's uh, great to have you on as the chairman of the State Senate Judiciary Committee and as somebody who uh, has practiced law in Kentucky and very interested in reforming, if you will, the criminal justice system. Uh, this issue of Marcy's Law, a big issue, you've worked on it for several years. Uh, it finally did pass the state, uh, both branches of the state the legislature. Uh, it's on the ballot, but yet I think many people aren't aware of it. They don't yeah, know word, that it's on the ballot. The word is still spreading. Marcy's Law is a, is a national movement. There's an organization uh, that started many years ago um, trying to create this, this wave of creating constitutional rights for crime victims. Kentucky uh, it remains one of uh, a dozen or so states, uh, 15 or 16 states, I think, at last count, that don't have constitutional rights for crime victims. That's why this is important. Right now, before Marcy's Law, Kentucky had some pretty modest rights in statute. And they only applied to, to victims of crimes of about 15 or so crimes, the most violent crimes that you can think of. But we have over 400 felonies on the books and crimes mm -hmm. on the books in Kentucky. There are tens of thousands of crime victims that had no rights whatsoever well, under Kentucky law. Can I jump in? I just, I'm curious as to how we get to a place to where the rights for criminals exceeds the rights for crime victims. Is this something that has happened all of a sudden, or is this something no, that no, has happened over time? How do we get to that place? Well, we're talking about the constitutional rights of the accused mm -hmm. uh, versus the rights of victims. And the Constitution's been around uh, a long time, and over time, rights for victims have started to come along, uh, and Marcy's Law has been this biggest push uh, in modern history to do this and to create constitutional rights. Then again, there are some states that have constitutional rights for crime victims, Arizona being one of them that predates the Marcy's Law National Initiative. Uh, they've had uh, constitutional rights for their crime victims for almost three decades. Um, but it has been something that's just come up here recently, and I think it's a good thing. You know, we talk often about things, and we've done some things. I've worked on some bills and legislation and voted on some that have worked to help those who have broken the law, whether they need to have more harsh penalties and punishments for dealing in, in heroin and, and cocaine and meth and so forth, or fentanyl, uh, or if we need to help them on reentry so that people who are in custody, when they get out, have a better chance of success. So we don't see them again, which is ultimately the point, right? We want a justice mm -hmm. system that protects public safety and actually punishes and corrects the behavior. Right. But there's been this lack of a focus on crime victims. 
Marcy's Law seeks to change that. It proposes a really simple set of fundamental basic rights for crime victims. Well, before we, if we could, before we go into that, how did Marcy's Law come into being? It's obviously named yeah. after somebody. How did, how did it <clears throat> It's named after in? a woman named Marceline Nicholas. Uh, her brother is a billionaire. Um, he's, he's sort of a, a weird guy, um, has a spotty history, uh, but um, he and his family were traumatized by what the assailant of his sister did to them. The assailant killed a sister, mm. brutally mm-hmm. murdered his sister, mm. Marcelie, uh, after whom Marcy's Law is named. And then at some point, he was released from custody, mm. and the victim's family, the Nicholas family, wasn't told. He sought them out and found them in a grocery store mm. and said something, like threatened them, said something that, that was just really uh, terrible and traumatizing to them. And that started him off on this quest to create these crime victims' rights, which would have require that a victim be told someone's going to be released. So in this case, you have the crime victim's family that was caught off guard. They had no That's idea right. that the perpetrator of the, the daughter's and the sister's death uh, was released. That's uh, right. Uh, met him in a grocery store just out of the blue, which, of course, is traumatic just to lose a loved one to a murder. It's the, probably even more traumatic or just as traumatic to see the assailant, the, the perpetrator of the crime, out in public. And, and then to to be uh, targeting them, apparently. Yeah, it, it's a troubling thing. And I wish I could say that that never happens every other time uh, in, in every other case. But it happens all the time. Um, uh, a lot of crimes happen uh, and are committed by people that we know or that we're near. Uh, and those sorts of things happen a lot. And you can find here in Kentucky and in other places where victims' rights aren't as strong, you can find places where victims aren't included. One of the people that, that testified this year, uh, a, a crime victim, told a story, a terrible story, about how her husband had assaulted her, drugged her, and assaulted her. And uh, the charge was really strong, and the evidence was strong. They had had her wear a wire at one point, got him on record, saying, admitting to everything that he did. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the charge was amended way down to something that was a slap on the wrist. Then when the victim, the the wife talked to the prosecutor about it. The prosecutor said, I'm the one driving this bus, not you. And that crime victim was disturbed by that, traumatized by that again, seeing that her assailant, her husband, who should be there to protect her and and be there for her and support her, Mm -hmm. not only did the opposite of those things uh, and assaulted her, Mm -hmm. but now sees no consequence for his actions. And for her to be treated that way by the justice system she sat in the committee room and she said, you know what, at the end of the day, the prosecutor still has the discretion and the authority to handle cases how they see fit. But it would have made all the difference in the world if I had just been able to be heard. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. just let me be heard. So what does exactly, so the right to be heard, the, the, the victim's right to be heard, but what specific things does Marcy's Law en- enact? A handful of rights that creates, uh, that, that are simple procedural rights, a right to notice of proceedings, whether it's a pretrial conference or it's a, a, a bail hearing or, or a sentencing hearing, whatever it is, or a jury trial, a right to notice, a right to be present. That's a big one in Kentucky because that right doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right now, Kentucky operates using something called the, the rule of separation, separation of witnesses. So when a trial happens, mm-hmm. all the witnesses, victim included, they're all out of the room, so they can't hear what the other witnesses say. Well, I think for the victim, that should change. The victim should be allowed to sit there at counsel table 
and be in the room with the prosecution and the defense and hear the case that's put out before them. That was a big culture change for prosecutors uh, and will be, assuming the voters ratify it this fall. Um, but Arizona's had it for almost 30 years, that particular right in, in, in particular. Um, the right to, to be present, the right to restitution, which mm-hmm. doesn't exist right now. The right to be present doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the right to notice of release of the accused uh, or of parole of the accused. Um, those are the biggest ones. The, the last one, and there are others, but the, the last one is really what gives all of them teeth, and that's the right to have standing to enforce those rights. Legal standing is, is having the court-recognized authority to even be in the room to defend and stand up and have those rights asserted. So if I could jump in and just to get clarity, so that means that if those rights that are given to the crime victim aren't uh, being followed through, that uh, that person can go to court and press for their rights and That's say, right. these my rights are being violated. They, could, right. they stand before a judge and say, hey, please apply the law in this situation. That's right. Okay. Hey, if you're just tuning in, I'm with State Senator Whitney Westerfield. We're talking Marcy's Law. We're going to go to a break, and we'll be back in just a minute. At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to The Commonwealth Matters. Welcome back to The Commonwealth Matters. This is Richard Nelson, and we are talking Marcy's Law and Crime Victims' Rights. Uh, Senator Westerfield, uh, this is something that you have been involved with for uh, a number of years. You've served in the state Senate, I believe, about six years. Is that correct? Five and a half, yeah. Five and a half years. Uh, and you're also, by the way, running for attorney general next year. I am. So the issue of justice and uh, criminal law is something near and dear to your heart to the level where uh, you are seeking to become the state's top uh, law enforcement officer. Uh, Marcy's Law is something that uh, has passed both houses of the state it's legislature. It's actually the very first bill out of the General Assembly in the 2018 session on day 15 out of 60. Which means that this was a priority. If it it's was. it's the number one bill, it was a priority. It was. To both, to both chambers with broad bipartisan support in both chambers, uh, almost no, no votes. It wasn't unanimous, but there were almost no, no votes. Uh, this is the third year that we've tried moving Marcy's Law, and we finally got it through. And now the voters uh, on November 6th have a chance to ratify that. So let's talk about the constitutional process. To amend the Kentucky Constitution is a difficult process. It's not just the passage of a law by a mere majority vote. It needs a, a two-thirds vote in both the House and Senate to pass. It, it does. It needs uh, a stronger vote, and then the voters themselves have to ratify it, which which calls for a really substantial uh, awareness campaign that's got to be conducted statewide so people know what in the world they're voting on. And as I talk to people across the state, I'm finding people aren't even aware that this is going to be on the ballot this November the 6th. They know that they're going to vote for candidates. Of course, every state House member's on the ballot. Half of the state Senate's on the ballot. You've got every congressional uh, office holder on the ballot and then various local offices. But many people don't know that Marcy's Law 
uh, will be on the ballot as well. And here's what the language says. This is when you go into that uh, voting booth, you're going to see along uh, the, the, the names of the candidates, there will be a question there that says this. Are you in favor of providing constitutional rights to victims of crime, including the right to be treated fairly, with dignity and respect, and the right to be informed and to have a voice in the judicial process? That's the language of Marcy's law. To me, it sounds pretty cut and dry. It right. sounds reasonable. And as I alluded to in the first uh, segment, I'm just wondering, how do we get to a point where apparently criminals have more rights than the, the crime victim? It seems like a common sense uh, fix to, are, to an imbalance that was there. There, there are right. It's important that the accused have rights. I, I don't want to diminish the rights of, of the constitutional yeah. rights of those that stand accused. Our justice system is predicated on the assumption of innocence, the presumption of innocence. Uh, and the state has to carry its burden of proof to convict someone. If they've been charged with a crime, uh, the state has its obligation to meet its highest burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we're talking about taking away someone's liberty. The stakes should be very high, and the, the challenge of the bar should be very high for the Commonwealth uh, to meet its burden. But victims deserve a part in this, too. While the system uh, may have to work its course, does have to work its course, in order to convict someone, there is no presumption that a victim is a victim. They've got skin in the game before anybody else does. And we're talking about a modicum of, of basic rights for them to enjoy, to have a part in the process and a role that's more meaningful and, and frankly, more fulfilling and more restorative for the victim than what we have today. This is what you said in an opinion piece you wrote earlier this year. You say, Marcy's Law creates a criminal justice system that finally recognizes the victim as an equal. And you do bring up a good point that we have a system of, um, uh, of criminal law that we have, we're innocent until proven guilty. That's right. Uh, at the same time, if there's been a crime committed, a, a real harm has been done to another person and they should have some kind of rights. I think the other aspect of this discussion is that when you're talking about somebody who's been convicted uh, in the court of law and has been found to be guilty, um, that presumption of innocence obviously is taken away. And it makes it clearer that there's, there's, a, there's a perpetrator who's been found guilty and then you have a victim and I think behind Marcy's Law, what it appears to be is that there's the upholding of their rights, protecting them from further harm against that perpetrator. That's right. Um, Whitney, I'd like us to transition a little bit. This, this topic of criminal justice reform is bigger than just Marcy's Law, which I'm in favor of, by the way. I appreciate you sponsoring this and shepherding it through the legislative process. Uh, but there has been talk of other criminal justice reform. Kentucky right now has very high rates of incarceration. Our prisons are at capacity and overflowing their capacity in some cases. Uh, and at the same time, we see uh, more, more people being sent to prison. Many of them are drug-related crimes. You have, uh, in some cases, low, a lot of cases, low-level drug offenders. Uh, and, and I think there's a, a the mindset is that, you know, prison is not the answer. Uh, there has have to be other alternative ways to, uh, to, to punish and then to restore. There's two aspects. When you break the law, when you violate the law, there are consequences to that. 
But just throw them in prison, throwing them in prison, locking them up and throw away the key, we're finding that, first of all, we can't do it without building more prisons, but also it's not restoring them. It's not. And, and there has been discussion of restorative justice. That's a big term. And I think when somebody's been harmed uh, by a criminal, uh, whatever that harm might be, there's a tendency to harbor a real bitterness. There, there's a real harm, and I don't want to downplay that. But we forget that that perpetrator is a human being made in the image of God. Um, they've obviously violated God's standards and violated public policy and the law of the land. But we need to realize that once they've paid their debt to society, whatever that might be, that they're going to come back into society and try to rejoin society. And at some point... 95% of them that are in will be coming back out and will be in that boat. And, and here's the question. How do we integrate them back into society once they've paid their debt? And by the way, uh, speaking from personal experience, I'm involved with the prison ministry. We go to Eddyville, and I'm able to bring a message. I'm with a ministry team, and we have worship services. There are worship services there every Sunday. And... There are three groups of prisoners that we speak to because they segregate the populations. You have the general population, you have the death row inmates, and then you have the protective custody, and they they keep them separate. So we have three separate services. But one thing that's been made clear to me as I've been involved with this ministry for a couple of years now is that these are real people. Uh, they've got families. They come from communities. Many of them had jobs. Some were respectable members of their communities, but they have fallen and they did some terrible things in many cases, but many of them do want to turn their lives around. They were trying to make reparations and make things right. So we're talking about restorative justice. Whitney, does this have a chance in Kentucky? I hope so. I, and I know it's already being used. You can find a restorative justice program being used in Louisville right now. Uh, we included it in my juvenile justice bill in 2014. We allowed restorative justice to be uh, we encouraged it as something that, that could be utilized. For those that don't know, restorative justice is sort of, I, I'm going to call it a mediation of sorts, but it, it, it is fundamentally based on the victim being involved and the defendant being involved and trying to restore both of them. Hmm. You've got somebody whose liberty is taken. You've got somebody else whose uh, who's, uh, safety and, and, and self uh, sense of safety and sense of self and, and perhaps their property has been taken or shaken or assailed in some way. And they both have to consent to this, and it gives them an opportunity to heal. If our, if our effort in our justice system is to make Kentucky safer, and it is, and it should be, then we should do whatever we can do to foster better public safety. If our, if our jail numbers are swelling, could we just build more prisons? Uh, if we could afford it, I suppose that's one way to do it. But is that the most effective way to do it? I don't think that it is. I think that we should do things to make sure that the people who break the law one time only ever break it that one time. Mm -hmm. So that when they get out, as 95, as I said before, 95% of the people that are in custody today are getting back out one day. One day. Let's make sure that they're successful when they do. Let's make sure that, that we do everything we can. And we can't do everything. The government and the state can't replace um, a family that's broken and a, and a loving mother and father for a juvenile, for a young adult. Uh, it can't fix certain elements of society that are outside its ability to, to influence. 
Uh, but there are things that we can do. Restorative justice is one such thing. We just need to make sure that what we're doing actually improves public safety. We, can, we, we are exceptionally good at somebody taking somebody that's broken the law and locking them up in a room for a, a fixed period of time and then letting them back out. But if we're not doing what we are supposed to do to correct that behavior, we're going to see them again, as unfortunately we tend to do at a high rate in Kentucky. Let's unpack that uh, thought for the last segment and uh, stay with us, and we'll be back right after this break. At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit commonwealthmatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. And on this edition of the program, we are talking uh, justice, criminal justice reform with State Senator Whitney Westerfield. And uh, we were talking about restorative justice just before the break and the idea that there is um, healing with both the, the victim of a crime and the perpetrator who committed that crime. And uh, there's a, an idea that it's not just locking somebody up, but there are other ways for the criminal to make amends to their victim. And this is a biblical idea, Whitney, where uh, we see the idea of restoration as a matter of Old Testament principle, where if you steal one person's sheep, you need to pay them back three sheep. Right. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you harm them in some way, you're going to pay back uh, uh, a, a monetary damages. Um, uh, and the idea of restitution, I think, is an important thing that would be helpful to to help make amends when there's been a wrong. If you if you rob somebody's home, then you should restore what you've stolen. The key is that the victim has to agree to doing this. Mm-hmm. Not you can't for we're not going to force uh, a victim uh, to go through this that doesn't want to, or a defendant that doesn't want to. But if there's an openness in in the hearts of both to participate in this. I've seen it work in juvenile cases where it does restore. It does restore, and it changes. In fact, I was telling, uh, I was in a, uh, had an opportunity to hear from some, from some folks from Oregon recently about some restorative justice work that they've been doing, and there was a, a judge uh, that was involved, or a prosecutor rather that was involved, and um, she, the prosecutor himself rather, had been a uh, a victim fifteen or twenty years ago. Mm. And he went through restorative justice and participated in it with the then the kid that did something terrible to him. To this day, that kid will find, who's now a, a young adult or a young man now seeks him out and gives him reports on how he's doing, wow. about his success, about how he's doing in school, about what he's done, done with his career. Wow. Uh, and it's been 15 years. Man, that's a success story, and that's, that's the kind of justice system we should strive to create, something that achieves that. Because that kid, now an adult, is not going to do that behavior again. They get a sense of the reality of the consequence of their act to break the law to hurt someone. They see the human component of that. It's not just an abstract, I stole a thing or a widget from some place. I've hurt a fellow human being in this way that's palpable and real. 
and it gives that that the the convict an opportunity to heal, and it importantly, uh, just as importantly, gives that victim an opportunity to find some uh, some resolution and some closure to that. Thank, thanks for sharing that story. That gives us hope that there can be restoration, even though a wrong has been committed with the idea of restorative justice, uh, there can be healing for both the victim and the perpetrator. When I'd like to, uh, to transition, if we could, in the last couple of minutes here, another issue that you've championed is juvenile justice reform here in Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of juveniles in detention right now. And if you just tell, take a minute and tell us what, what you did with the well, we justice. we actually used to have more than we do today. Uh, we were we were locking kids up for offenses that you should never lock a kid up for, and they were staying for inordinate lengths of time. And it's much more expensive for a juvenile. Average or the the cost per year for a county jail is about thirty thousand dollars, or maybe twenty thousand dollars, twenty two thousand yeah. for a juvenile bed per bed per year. It's over a hundred thousand oh, dollars. Wow. And we were, we were locking children up for longer than their adult counterparts for doing the same sort of conduct. It, it was crazy. And so we've made some serious changes to try to redirect efforts to make sure we capture these youth before they ever see a courtroom. Because most of the cases that ended up in court are cases that should never be there in the first place. Where? We have an opportunity to restore. There's a great Frederick Douglass quote. I refer to it every time juvenile justice comes up. It's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Mm. We have an opportunity to make a difference in the trajectory of those children's lives earlier than later. Because if we fail on the front end, they're going to be brought up in the way they should go or in the way they should not go. And they're not going to stray from that path. We should get them on the path to where they should go so that we're not dealing with them again as adults in the criminal justice system where our prisons and jails are exploding in population. That bill has been a strong success. It has uh, changed the course of uh, a, a lot of lives. It's reduced court dockets for juveniles. It has not resulted in any sort of public safety uh, problems across the Commonwealth. It hasn't reduced public safety at all. And it's now been used in at least a half dozen other states around the country. So a model uh, law that Absolutely. you to, to they, uh, Different states have borrowed whole chapters of it here and there for, for what fits in their jurisdiction. If you're just tuning in, we're with State Senator Whitney Westerfield, and we're talking criminal justice reform. Senator Westerfield, I appreciate your efforts to reform the system and to update our laws, and especially regarding juveniles who've been trapped in a, maybe an outdated, outmoded, uh, unproductive uh, uh, justice model. Thank you for taking the lead on that. Uh, you will be on the ballot, not as a state senator, uh, this uh, this November, but next year you have announced that you're running for attorney general. Will you keep these issues of, of justice Absolutely. reform on the forefront? Absolutely. As attorney general, I think it's important that you use that office to help work on public policy that improves the public safety of Kentuckians. I want to make sure that the, that the justice system we have makes Kentucky as safe as it can be and, and does so in the most effective and efficient way. And I'm going to keep advocating for those regardless of what my title is. Um, I, I hope I'm doing that as the next Kentucky Attorney General, but if I'm not, I'll still be doing it as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, and after that, just uh, John Q. Public Citizen. Because that work's important. And I, I think until we achieve a justice system we can be proud of, and one we can afford, uh, but mainly that we can be proud of that actually makes Kentucky safer, then there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, we're a long way off from there. Very good. Senator Westerfield, I appreciate you. God bless you. Thank you.